You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. my first ever personal computer. It was a gateway laptop, and I was excited just to have my own computer. You got to remember, I grew up in the days where when you turned on the internet, you had to say, Mom, get off the phone. I need to get on the internet. And then it took 25 minutes when the thing, some of y'all don't know about that. You're privileged, right? I didn't know much about PCs, and I still don't. But there were really only two programs that I needed, Internet Explorer and Microsoft Word. I didn't know how to use anything else on the computer. I didn't need to use anything else on the computer. These were the only programs I needed. My studies in college hinged on these two programs. They were the most important. And I used this computer throughout my college career. But by my senior year, my my computer was bugging out. I started to run into computer problems. When I would turn on my computer and I would open up one of these two programs, the thing would just pull that hourglass up and it would just flip and flip and flip for like 15 to 20 minutes. And about 10 minutes in, my computer would sound like a spaceship that was about to take off. It was working so hard to get these two programs running, but it could not actually get the programs to boot. So finally, after experiencing this time and again in my computer freezing, I decided on one of my semester breaks to take my computer to go and get it fixed. And I, and I took my computer into the woman, and the lady who was working on my computer took the computer, and she called me a few days later. And she said, I found the problem. And I said, great, what's the problem? She said, you installed an antivirus program that is automatically turning on every time you turn on your computer. And you don't realize it, but the antivirus program is eating up all of the RAM of your computer, all of the bandwidth. And because it's sucking up all of the RAM, there's not enough processing power in order to open the programs that really matter to you. Your computer just doesn't have any processing power for what's important. Now, I didn't realize that the antivirus program was running when I turned on my computer. I didn't even notice it. Didn't see it. There was nothing that popped up that showed me. I couldn't tell, but the fact of the matter is that my computer could not do the two most important things I needed it to do because my processing power was stolen. There are two primary things that God has put you on this earth to do. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The Christian life hinges on these two things. But we often find ourselves with computer problems, don't we? (laughs) Many mornings when we wake up, These two programs are slow to boot, especially before coffee. These two programs, love for God and love for neighbor, are not loading. We're working as hard as we ever have worked, and yet love for God and love for people is not loading. And this is the reason why. Our sense of lack 
is consuming all of our processing power in our minds. Our minds are constantly running, trying to address this feeling of deficit. To put it another way, we struggle to live in contentment. We feel a shortage of money, processing power stolen, because now we're occupied with trying to figure out how to make something come out of nothing, right? We feel a deficit of affirmation. Processing power is stolen. And now we start plotting on how to get people to say nice things about us and trying to curry favor with others so they will give us the affirmation that we long for. We feel an absence of power, control, security, processing power stolen. Today, we bring our series on the Ten Commandments to a close with an exploration of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And we're going to approach this text through two points as we look at the call to contentment and the source of contentment. We're going to look at the call to contentment and the source of contentment. So let's look at our first point, the call to contentment. Now, as we've been saying with each of these 10 commandments that we're studying, it's important not only for the whole of the Decalogue, the whole of the Ten Commandments, to take into consideration the Exodus context, but each one of the Ten Commandments really is, is explored better by understanding how it fits into the broader context, how the, how the preceding context informs that particular commandment. Now, remember this. Israel had just witnessed astonishing things that the Lord had done for them in the events of the Exodus. They saw plagues brought down from the Lord to judge the gods of Egypt. They saw the sea parted, and they went across on dry land. And then they watched Moses stretch his staff out over the sea to defeat their greatest enemy. God made good on his word to them, that he would bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And on the other side... Of the sea, they sang and they danced. They sang a new song and celebrated God's redeeming love. Now, they were at the beginning of their journey to the promised land. The land of milk and honey. And things were looking really good for the people of God. But three days into their journey, the people wonder if they're going to die of thirst out there in the wilderness. And so they complain to Moses, and the Lord miraculously provides water for them to drink. And not long after this, the people grumbled to Moses again when they got hungry. And they wonder if God brought them out into the desert to starve them. And so Moses, with the Lord's help, is the agent through whom God miraculously provides meat and bread from heaven. And what we see in the story is that it took four days to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took generations to get Egypt out of Israel. They lived like slaves. They lived with that lack of security. They, they, they lived with the scarcity mentality. Economists will tell you that scarcity is when you feel like you don't have as much as you need in order to survive. That was what they carried out of Egypt. And it's shortly after these events that the Lord brings Israel to Mount Sinai and he says to them, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. We could say that coveting is when you experience a desire for what someone else has 
and you nurse that desire from a heart of discontentment with what the Lord has given you. And when you feel a desire for what your neighbor has, and then you start to nurse that desire, it's not long before you start hatching plans in order to get it, and then theft follows. You got to start back at the heart in order to interrupt the actions. And so when the Lord tells his people not to covet, you have to remember that, that this is in the second table of the law. Remember that if you want to understand the Ten Commandments, there are two tables of the law. The first four commandments are about how you are to love the Lord your God. And the final six commandments are about how you are to love your neighbor. And it's no surprise that this, this warning against coveting is given in the second table of the law. Because you can't love your neighbor when you're plotting on getting their stuff. When your heart is caught up with, with longing and jealousy for what they have and you feel you lack. The call of the 10th commandment is a call to contentment. It's a call to contentment. This command, do not covet, is a fitting conclusion to God's rule of love. Because it shows us that true obedience to all the other commandments must begin in the heart. It must begin in the heart. This command shows us that the true life of love is not just a performance that you use to fool other people. It's not just a performance of the right actions. The true life of love is energized and sustained by a heart that is captivated by redeeming love. That's how you lean against that impulse to covet. That's how you find the contentment. Now, I... I know I say this all the time, but it bears repeating. In our social media age, many people, many people today are more interested in looking good than actually being good. But this commandment shows us that in God's eyes, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's the matter of the heart. Because if God has your heart, then God has you. And not only that, if God has your heart, God has you, and so does your neighbor. When God has your heart, your neighbor has you. But the primary way in which we break the 10th commandment is through our discontentment with what God has given to us. We feel entitled to good health, good jobs, and good money. That's why we register such shock when these things are not present in our lives. Or our idea of these things, right? We feel entitled to favorable circumstances, nice things, and a life free of hardship and suffering. It's no surprise that the, that the scriptures tell us on multiple occasions, don't be surprised if sufferings come upon you. Right? Are you better than the Lord Jesus? <laughs> if he endured sufferings, if he endured affliction, if he endured rejection, why do you think that you should be exempt from it? Why do you feel entitled to a life that is free from those things? At the heart of covetousness is the distinct sense that God owes me. God owes me. I deserve fill in the blank. It's the exact opposite of the life of grace. You know what grace says? All that I have is a gift, and all that I have is better than I deserve. 
Every breath I draw is a borrowed breath. Because if I got what I deserved, I would not come out a winner compared to what I have now. Whew. All that I that's, that's what the life marked by grace says. That's how it thinks. All that I have is a gift. And I get much more than I deserve every day. Let me see if I can put it to you in an illustration. Back in the day when I was a teenager, I told you all on many occasions that my dad, Russ Whitfield Sr., is an old school cat. That means he believes in child labor, right? <laughs> and so I remember this one specific day that it was a summer day, and my dad was going off to work, and he gave me a grocery list of work to do. And I lived across the street. We lived across the street from my grandparents. And so I had to do that work for them, too. So I was cutting our grass. I was weeding the garden. He wanted me to do demolition on my grandparents' outhouse. Yes, I grew up country. Outhouse, you heard right. Demolition on the outhouse, which is a truckload of work. And then, you know, it, did, it wasn't long before my grandma and grandpa started asking me to do little things around. By the time we got to the end of the day, my rear was kicked. And we sat down as a family and we ate dinner. And then after dinner, you know, you got to let dad eat a little something because he'd be hangry coming home, coming home from work. So after we ate dinner, I, I decided me and dad had to look, have a little heart to heart. <laughs> and, I, and I went to my dad and I said, hey, dad, you know what I've been thinking when I was working hard for the family all day? I was thinking that it, 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 would, be a, it would be a good idea if I could get some compensation. My dad said, who? <laughs> I said, some payment, some compensation. He said, hmm, how'd you sleep last night? Was the bed comfortable? And I said, yeah, it was comfortable. He said, how you like them clothes you got on? They look pretty comfortable. Are they, they? I was like, yeah, I mean, I like these clothes. He's like, did you, did you eat breakfast today? I said, yeah, I ate breakfast. He's like, what'd you have? I said, I had bacon, I had eggs, and I had toast. He's like, mm, sounds good. Did you have lunch? I was like, yes, Dad, I had lunch. I had, he's like, what'd you have? I was like, I had a tuna sandwich and some chips. He's like, did you have dinner? I was like, you just sat down with me at dinner. You know I had dinner. He said, hmm, did you pay for any of these things? Did any of the bills for any of these things come to you? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, I think you've been paid quite well. This little encounter exposed my ingratitude and entitlement and discontentment, and it fundamentally changed the way that I perceived participating in the household work because I knew Dad was right. I knew he was right. I was freeloading on my parents, and I had the nerve to come and ask for some payment after I was eating up all their food, and I did eat up all their food. <laughs> And everything that I had came from my parents, and they paid for it, right? Here's the big picture. The Lord gives us the Ten Commandments, his rule of love, because it's essential to our mission in the world. And the Lord intends to spread his love in the world precisely through a people formed by love. It has been said that what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. 
And what the Lord wants to go deepest to our heart is his love so that it will go widest to the world. Contentment is crucial to the work of love. But how do we find it? How do we find contentment? That brings us to our second point and our complimentary text in the book of Philippians. The source of contentment. Let's get to the second point. We shift our attention to Philippians. We got the Exodus context of that commandment. But Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 through 20 is one of the most beautiful and profound verses for addressing the core concept at the heart of the 10th commandment. As the Apostle Paul closes out his letter, he, he wants to thank the Philippians once again for their partnership in the gospel through their financial support of his ministry. And in multiple passages, Paul says that the beauty of the Philippians' example was that their repeated acts of sacrificial giving were simply the overflow of abundant and joyful hearts. They were so overwhelmed by God's grace in the gospel that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to their brothers and sisters. In fact, what Paul implies in this passage is that you have not really given yourself to the Lord until you have given yourself to others in concrete acts of love. You can't separate the two. And this is why Paul says, it was good of you to share my trouble, fitting right and good. This community in Philippi gave generously for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. And they partnered with the Apostle Paul throughout his gospel ministry in tangible and meaningful ways on many occasions. And even though for a short period they had trouble getting their gifts into Paul's hands, Paul wants the people to know not only that he's grateful, but he also adds some important clarifications in the process of thanking them that give us insight into our theme for today. And it provides a really nice note of closure for our series on the Ten Commandments. Look at verses 11 through 13. Put your eyes on the text. Paul says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Though Paul is thankful for their financial gifts, he wants to make clear to them that he doesn't live in a posture of entitlement, ingratitude, or discontentment. Paul knew that the life of love and the mission of God involved personal costs. He knew that. He was prepared for it. The life of love and the mission of God involved making sacrifices. This work and this life involved challenges and trials and hardships and sufferings. For example, living in the city is a cost of mission. Sure, you could get a bigger house for uh, much less money if you went somewhere else, but being here is a cost of mission. Yes, there is less crime and violence in other places. But if you're on mission here, this is a cost of mission. Sure, you might be personally suited to a slower pace of life. But you're on mission here and living amidst the city bustle is a cost of mission. Paul is saying 
that he learned to take the highs and the lows of this life of love in stride. He's learned to take the ups and the downs of this work of mission with grace. He has learned to be content no matter what comes to him as a result of this life of love and this mission of God. And how has he done this? Verse 13 is his answer. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, if you've been around the Christian faith for any length of time, you know that this is an oft-abused verse. I've, I've seen t-shirts that say, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? <laughs> do you see the context of this verse? The context of this verse is leading us to see that what Paul means is I can live through any kind of living circumstances through him who strengthened me. I can be content with filet mignon, and I can be content with frankenbeans. I can be content in a penthouse or with no house. He can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. No matter what life was like for him in a given season, he would not give up or check out because his stability was not resting on his circumstances, his net worth, his amenities, or his earthly comforts. Paul learned that Jesus is the source of contentment. And he learned how to lay hold of Christ and all of his benefits no matter what he was facing. This enabled Paul to treat his conflicts like a classroom for learning Christ. He viewed his problems as pathways for drawing near to Christ. He treated his sufferings as sources for knowing Christ more deeply. Here's Paul's perspective here. And never forget this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if you have a Jesus plus something else perspective, you have something other than the gospel. Jesus doesn't need any amendments. Jesus doesn't need any supplementation. Jesus doesn't need any additional factors in order for him to be enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Paul knew that Jesus is the source of contentment. And this is what he wanted to get through to his friends in Philippi. And this is what he wants to get through to you today, beloved. This is what he wants to get through. Paul could testify that when you have Jesus, you always have enough. The Philippians needed to hear this because they were struggling through the cost of mission. They gave out of their poverty. And Paul is guiding them to the place of contentment and perseverance. Do you see what he says in verse 19? Take a look at it. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I think this is one of the most encouraging and beautiful passages in all of the scriptures. Many have turned to this verse for support in difficult times. But you may wonder, how can I know that God will provide? I hear you, preacher. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I get it. But how can I have confidence? How can I know that God will provide? And the answer 
to your question, no matter what the need is, no matter what you need him to provide for, the answer to that question is that this is exactly who God has revealed himself to be throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Adam and Eve could tell you that he provided covering for their shame. Noah could tell you that he provided refuge from the judgment. Abraham could tell you that he provided a promised child even in his old age. Isaac could tell you that he provided a substitute sacrifice to spare his life. Jacob could tell you that he provided transforming grace to turn him from a deceiver into a believer. Joseph could tell you that he provided sustaining grace in the prison and a pathway to the palace. Moses could tell you that he provided an unthinkable way of escape when the enemy surrounded. Israel could tell you that he provided daily nourishment in the middle of a desert. Joshua could tell you that he provided strength for the battle and victory over the enemy. David could tell you that he provided forgiveness and renewal in the face of his grievous and terrible sin and failure. Solomon could tell you that he provided unsearchable wisdom to guide his way. And the prophets could tell you that he provided a, a vision of hope in the midst of devastation and despair. And in the fullness of time, the Lord provided his son, Jesus Christ, as the ultimate provision. He is our enough. In the gospel, Jesus proves that he is enough to turn sinners into saints. He is enough to turn your mourning into dancing. He is enough to turn your funeral into a fiesta. He is enough to turn death into an Uber ride to glory. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we can see this truth not only on the pages of scripture, but on the pages of our lives. Hasn't he brought you over some mountains? Hasn't he brought you through some valleys? Hasn't he carried you through some trials and some hardships and some heartache? He is not going to stop doing that work for you now. He hasn't brought you this far to leave you. Do you see? Do you see it? When God's people follow God's rule of love for the sake of God's mission, we will always have God's provision. I'm going to say that again. When God's people follow God's rule of love for the sake of God's mission, we will always have God's provision. You can take that to the bank. And look at how Paul closes. <laughs> Verse 20. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends this passage by bringing back to our minds the precious truth that God is our Father. That God is our Father. And whenever you feel discontentment and entitlement and ingratitude creeping up on you, I want you to imagine the Lord channeling Russ Whitfield Sr. and saying to you, how did you sleep last night? Have you received gospel comfort and rest? How do you like being clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Have you eaten? 
Have you been nourished by the bread of life? Have you enjoyed freedom from guilt and shame and fear? Have you been given a new heart, a living hope, and a glorious future? Did the bills for any of these things come to you? And it's at this point that the Lord's grateful people reply, No, all the bills for all of these good things you've poured out on us came due at Calvary. I have already been supplied quite well. It's this kind of gospel reflection that breaks the back of our entitlement and our ingratitude and our discontentment. It's this gospel that can fundamentally change our perspective on participating in the household work of God, the work of love. So as we bring our study on God's rule of love to a close, let us join our voices with the Apostle Paul saying, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. And all God's beloved children said, let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.